There's a major magazine that did a, um, a survey where they asked their, their readers to describe the people who you know are not for you, meaning you wouldn't date them, and you, there's no way you could marry them. Um, what would fit that description? And some of the responses came in, and some of the uh, most significant ones were these. Somebody said, if they said, if you had to describe people who you know are not for you, this was one of them. Man in Speedos. <laughs> A girl who breaks down the fat content of everything you eat. A guy who wears a fanny pack. <laughs> Girls who talk about old boyfriends. You know who you are. Guys who own like three books. Girls who brag about bowel movements or never having one. Guys who hawker loogies. Any girl who picks, plucks, tweezes, bleaches, glues, or waxes anything on her body in your presence. Guys who still quote Anchorman. <laughs> what? That escalated quickly. Any girl who doesn't immediately change a station when a Nickelback song comes on. <laughs> Guys who call a woman dude. <laughs> a girl who makes it clear she loves a pet more than she could ever love you. That eliminates a lot of people in the room. And this is universal... Monobrows. What makes someone worth marrying? Are you worth marrying? What makes somebody ready to be in a marriage, to enter into one or to be in one? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn the lens of God and His Word onto marriage. And this is not just for you if you're married. It's not just for you if you're engaged. This is we're going to talk about men and women and what God says about who we are, how we function, how we interrelate. If you relate with people who are married, you're going to learn things in this series that will help you relate to them and encourage them. If you're recovering from an ended marriage, there are things to learn. If you're suffering and struggling in a marriage or you're thriving in one, we, we, there is a, it's amazing how God has, and His Word is so practical for something that's absolutely central to your life that you can't avoid. Whether you're avoiding marriage or not, you can't avoid the fact that marriage influences your world and people around you. And so whether you're seeking it or avoiding it or longing for it or frustrated by it or enjoying it, God has guidance for us. And we're going to get some of his perspective. Now, I'm going to invite you to a couple places, but one in particular, if you, want to, uh, if you have a Bible with you, and we encourage you to bring one. If you don't have one, we have a gift one for you. If you have access to one electronically, I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in just a little bit. We're going to take, take a look at some things there today. Also show you some other parts of Scripture. And so you might want to turn there. And, and so, is, so you, kind of, you might stick a finger in 1 Corinthians 7. But um, if you want, you can also, we're going to just very, very quickly do a kind of a flyover. All right? A little bit of an overview about this whole thing about what marriage is and where it came from. And I'm just going to say some things that are very, very simple, but that are just the foundational to this. this is Genesis chapter 2 describes something about marriage, and that is that marriage is designed and it was defined by God himself. It was his idea. He said it was a good one. He said all the things he did were good, but marriage was included in that. In, in a very well-known passage in, in Genesis 2, when Adam 
is formed. He, is, he, God, he doesn't have a, a suitable help, helper for him. God brings along, uh, takes from his, his side and creates Eve, presents her to him. And it says in uh, Genesis 2, verse 22, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, we are co we are we're co-receivers uh, of this image-bearing of God gift. We're partners in this. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's what the Hebrew means. For this reason, God says in the commentary on this, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. We're going to see that phrase a lot, or talk about it a lot, oneness, one flesh. And it says the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is before sin kind of came in and messed things up. And that's what happened. God creates this thing, this institution, and this relationship, this unique bond that is unlike any other bond in the universe where two come together and become one. And in short order, mankind falls and stumbles and even the dynamic of their relationship causes it to happen. And they're cursed. And marriage gets horribly disfigured. And it has been ever since. It it has struggles in it. It has trouble in it. But even in the middle of that, God has called it a good thing. And God has said that even in a fallen world, as fallen people, as sinful people, we are capable of having marriages that thrive, that are blessed, that are good. In Proverbs, we just did a series in Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 22 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good, receives favor from the Lord. Marriage is still a very, very good thing. Proverbs goes on to say in Proverbs 5, 18, May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's possible for us to have a true kind of harmony and joy in our marriages. This is after the fall. God is still saying it's possible. God blesses it. God blesses marriage. He says it should be honored. Hebrews 13 says marriage should be honored by all. It's still a good idea. It's not only a good idea, it's absolutely a pivotal part of our world and our society, the structure and fabric of our society, of the way we we function at our best, and of our individual health, our personal health, our spiritual health. The fact is that it is around you, and whether you are married or single, divorced, whatever, seeking, whatever you might be, at this moment, you are surrounded by people. A whole lot of people in the room are among them who are deeply affected right now by something related to marriage. The longing for it, the injury of it, recovery from it, the joy of it. It's in the room. It's part of our life. And here's another just part of the flyover is something that's true about marriage. That marriage as an institution, and you know this, it's trending downward right now in our society. It's not seen nearly as favorably as it once was. It is, you've seen the stats, but here are some of them. Washington Post reported that most recently, as of 2014, America now has, for the first time in history, less than half of U.S. households are married couples. 48%. First time it's been under 50%. The median age for marrying has gone up. It's the oldest in America that it's ever been. It is 27 for uh, women and 29 for men now. 
New York Times said that we are down 5% from a decade ago, just a de- 10 years ago, of households that are called traditional, where there's a married couple and children living under one roof. Only 20% of American households are that. Pew Research Center looked, said that the, the percentage of Americans who have never married is at a historically high point. One in five U.S. adults, 25 or older, have, have never been married. That is, that is a significant shift from where it's been even in a generation. And when you survey singles and whether they want to get married, that percentage has gone down 8% since 2012 in our country. People are not so positive about it. And maybe for good reason. They see that it doesn't deliver on its promises often. It also shows us that there's this heightened need for human beings who are thinking about marriage to consider what's God's way about this? Does he say something about it? What's his approach to to marriage? And, And what might be different from what God says than our own instincts and our own baggage that we bring into it? Is there a better idea? Is there a better way? I talked with a a couple who was going to be getting remarried. They had both been divorced and we were going to get remarried. And they said that, um, and I just asked them, they lived in another, another place, and they, I asked them, are you doing any like premarital counseling? And they kind of smiled like, oh, no, no, we've been married before. Like, we've learned. We, we kind of know how it works because we've been married before. And like Dr. Phil would say, my thought was, well, how did that work out for you? <laughs> but there's a mentality that kind of says, well, you know, you know, I've kind of, I've learned some stuff, but it's kind of like somebody who says, you know, I played golf once and I was terrible at it, but I'm going to go out and play again. I don't need lessons because I already played golf once. And I learned that my swing was terrible, so this time I'll just make it different. Could it be that the one who made us actually has some ideas that don't come from our instincts, that don't come from our natural practice, that are worth paying attention to about what it means to be ready for this thing and how, and how you function in, in, in a healthy way in it? And God will surprise you. And sometimes he'll madden you with what he has to say about this. But remember, it was his idea. It's his design. He knows how it works. He knows what he's talking about. And what he's going to ask you to do sometimes is to jettison some of your instincts and some of your baggage, to unlearn some stuff and maybe to retrench ourselves. So how do you know somebody's ready to be married, whether they're getting thinking about marriage, or they're in it. How do you know? Let's take a look. Got 1 Corinthians 7? Now, I'm not going to unpack the entirety of this section of the Bible, but it's fascinating and it's chock full of interesting statements from God through the Apostle Paul. And in the end of chapter 6, he's talking about who you're united with and how significant that is. And then he, then he, and he talks about sexual contact. And then he gets to chapter 7 and he the context of this is he's, at, he's answering some questions from a letter that got sent to him from a church like ours, saying, okay, tell us about how this marriage thing's worked. We got some specific questions, and he must have been asked questions about sexual contact in marriage, what's appropriate for that, what, when is it appropriate to, to end a marriage, when is it appropriate to re-enter a marriage, what, how does all that work together, what, what's, what are some principles there? And I'm, we're just going to start the process today, have, look, draw a few principles from this. And then dig it out more in the weeks to come. Okay, if you started coming today and you're visiting, you've got to come back. Because you're not getting the whole thing until you come back. But it starts today. And what we're going to see in this chapter 
are principles like this one. As, as we could summarize it this way. The person who's ready to be married is somebody who doesn't need to be married. They don't need to be married to be whole. Now, there's a common practice. It's all, just immediately, it's going to be countercultural, right? Because it is assumed that we get married because we feel like we seek someone who will provide something that I need something that I'm missing, something that will make me feel whole about myself, something to complete me so that we can say, you complete me to them. You're my remedy. If I, when we're longing for it, when we're, you're my rem, it, marriage is a remedy for my loneliness. Marriage is a remedy for my sexlessness. Marriage is a remedy for my flaws, for my fear of failure, for my sense of, my, my fear of growing old by myself. Marriage will solve and, and settle the problem of my unhappiness. Marriage is going to solve my financial problems. It's, it's, it's going to give me somebody to help with the cooking. Somebody who can fix things around here. Somebody who can help me raise my children. Somebody who's going to provide some sort of protection. Somebody who's going to relieve me from the negative effects of the world and from the fall of man that make the world not such an easy place to live in. Trevor Longman, who, who uh, co-authored a book called uh, Intimate Allies, said, we must never be naive enough to think of marriage as a safe harbor from the fall. Think about that. The deepest struggles of life will occur in the most primary relationship affected by the fall, marriage. We're misguided if we think it's going to do otherwise. And so the Apostle Paul says, now about the matters you wrote about, the first thing he says in chapter 7, verse 1, it's good for a man not to marry. Now he's quickly going to say, it's good for a man to be married too. Both things are okay. And again, I'm just going to summarize this. I'd really encourage you to read this chapter. It might be a good thing for us to read together at our cell groups this week. He's going to, he's going to say, look, it's, it's okay to get married. And if you've got things in your life, if, especially if there's sexual temptation, you probably should go ahead and get married. If, you know, don't violate God's ways in, in that way. But it, it's, okay. it, it's good not to be married. Both of them are all right. And so he, he says that we're not, he, the whole kind of theme of this is going to be say, don't seek to get something from somebody that's going to, they're, they're there to meet your needs. The next few verses, he's going to talk about sexual contact. He's going to say, look, the point of this thing is not, okay, let's do this marriage thing so you get your needs met. That's not your point. Your body is not your own. It is, belongs to the other person. You got to think differently about what the purpose of this union is. So the person who's ready to be married doesn't need to be married in order to be whole. We think that, and you know what happens. And we, got, we could tell stories all day today about how frustrating marriage is. How every time we turn around, the person doesn't come through for us like the way they... We, it feels like a bait and switch, boy. You were a tiger physically before we got married, and now I can't even get you to look at me. What happened? You promised certain things, and now look what you let yourself go. What, what you, I, you, you, you whined and dined me before we got married, and then as soon as you got me with my, I took your name, 
all of a sudden the spigot turned off and the romance is gone. There is something wrong with you. All that ties into this idea that's so common that marriage is there to provide us with something to meet a need for us that we are insufficient if we don't have it. And God's going to say, you don't need to be married to be whole. You shouldn't need to be married to be whole. If you've been through premarital counseling with me around here, you might have even seen this we've talked about. I use this chart. And there's a lot of detail in it, but let me just show you that there's a man at the bottom, there's a a bottom left, a woman at the bottom right, and there's oneness, which is that phrase that comes out of Genesis 2. That's kind of the goal of marriage, connecting with each other. All right, but that oneness happens on four levels that are listed above there. It's spiritual oneness, personal oneness, emotional oneness, and physical oneness. But that oneness does not happen just because you find somebody who comes together. It comes as a byproduct of what's along the sides there, which is the word wholeness. And that wholeness in those four areas, spiritually and personally and emotionally and physically, comes from connecting first with God, independent of the other person. The more a man connects with God and is whole in those areas, the better prepared he is to have oneness connecting with the woman. The more the woman independent of a man in her life, is connecting with God and is whole in those areas, the more ready she is to have oneness to its fullest with a spouse. So Paul the Apostle is going to say, look, don't seek a, a partner thinking it's good. That's it, that the reason for it is because it's going to solve your issues, that it's going to simplify things, that it's going to fix things. No, just the opposite, he says. Oh, it's not going to fix things. It's going to complicate things. All the married people going, eh. Look at verse 24. Brothers, each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, about virgins, meaning unmarried women. I don't have a com- an extra command from the Lord, meaning I'm not telling you to be married or not married. I'm giving you some ideas, he says. In verse 27, he expounds what those are. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. Look down at verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is, unconcerned, is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Sports teams, general managers of sports teams have learned this over the years. You don't buy championships. You don't get, uh, you, people have done it. They try to spend all the money, bring something in and just say, look, we're going to fit this part in and it's going to bring us a championship. You don't buy championships. You build championships. You, you grow them. You develop them. In the same way, you don't marry into happiness. You don't marry into health, personally. You don't marry into wholeness. You develop it. How do you do that? See, here's the thing. If you... It, whole singles, healthy singles make healthy married people. Unhealthy singles make unhealthy married people. There is no correlation that one is going to come in and it's going to solve things. Paul has just said, God says, no, it's going to complicate things. It's going to make it harder to live. 
So the person who's ready to marry isn't somebody who's looking for a way to get their, their world to do something for them, to fill a need. And that leads into this next kind of overview thought about this, which is that the person who's ready to be married, whether they're looking to get in a marriage or ready to, to live well in a marriage, is already living out a self-denial lifestyle. And my wife coined this phrase, and we've laughed about it, and I like it, SGS, single guy syndrome. There's this thing that, a phenomenon with men who get married and don't understand the difference between a single man and a married man, and they continue to live like a single man, even though they're married. Single guy syndrome. You know this is a guy because he's a guy who doesn't think in self-denying terms. He's just gotten married to get somebody to cook and clean and have sex with him or to be a, somebody who laughs with or watches the movies he wants to watch. But you see it come out because of the single, single guy syndrome. Whenever he goes in to sit in the, in the family room, this guy will go to the couch and he'll sprawl out on the couch because he's the first one there. He calls shotgun. That's how he's always done it. I got the couch. And other people have to figure out where to sit because he's got his spot on the couch. Single guy syndrome is... He's the guy who, when he gets done eating, he thinks he's being responsible when he takes his own plate from the table and goes and puts it in the sink. He thinks he's being a noble guy. He doesn't think once about the fact that there are other plates around him that might need taken too. If he's thirsty, he goes and gets a drink of water or he gets something out of the refrigerator and he doesn't ask anybody else if they're thirsty. He doesn't serve them first because that's their problem. That's just how it works. It's the kind of guy who, when he spends time alone with his children, he calls it babysitting. <laughs> he spends his money in his way when he's, got, he's thinking about his schedule for his softball game, not the children's t-ball game. And some people take years to transform out of the single guy syndrome into an awareness like, oh, it's supposed to be different? Oh, I have to think about other people? It wasn't what I thought this was about. That's what Paul's talking about, in, in for, among th- other things, in 1 Corinthians 7. Again, verses 33 to 35, if you just glance at it, he says, a, a single man is concerned, uh, c- can be concerned about the Lord's affairs. But a married man, verse 33, is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. See, there's a principle there that there's a shift. That marriage means a shift that says, I, I'm gonna, my whole orientation toward life is going to be thinking about how other people, self-denying. Can I tell you something? That does not come naturally for anybody. The most giving person you know is still selfish at their core. I'm sorry, that's just a fact of being a sinner. God has said that at our core, it's dark in there. And we, we might try to do certain gestures of care, to prove ourselves, but at our core, we really pretty much just want to serve ourselves. The person who's ready to be married is somebody who's already developing a self-denial mentality. You know what that means? It means they don't focus on the other person when they should be focusing on themselves. I cannot tell you how many times people have come, they're asking for marital counseling, and in essence, what they're saying is, you need to fix them. There's something wrong here. Fix them. 
And they can list you the things that need fixed. And sometimes they're glaring and sometimes they're awful, but that's pretty much the predominant thing. They're focusing on the other person when perhaps they need to be focusing on themselves. When you suggest to them, could, you, could it be that there's some stuff in you too? They go, that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I cannot stand to live with that person. Fix them. You're not doing your part. Here's your list of failures. The question God would ask us is, put it this way. You look at somebody, you think, are they the mar- would they be worth dating? Would they be worth making a commitment to? Would they be worth marrying? Among the questions we could ask is, do they, init- do they self-initiate self-assessment regularly? Do they do self-inventory? Are they focused on their personal growth? Are they aware that really it's their issues that are predominant that they're responsible for? In 1 Peter 3, we'll see, probably see this more later in weeks to come, Peter talks to women and he says, look, even if you've got a husband who's a scoundrel, okay, the focus he's, he focuses on is not go out and get him fixed. He says, you know what? You work on yourself. Display a gentle, quiet spirit. That's where that phrase comes from. So that even without words, he, your husband might be won over as they look at you and what's happening in you. Don't focus on the other person when you should be focusing on yourself. The flip side of that, a self-denial attitude or lifestyle, is that they don't focus on themselves when they should be focusing on the other person. Again, this is the most unnatural, counterintuitive trait in all of God's equation about this. That when we approach life in general, and marriage in particular, that the focus shifts and, and, and they don't focus on themselves anymore. They focus on somebody else. From our birth, we cry when we are hungry, when we are tired, when we need change. Babies are not too concerned about whether another baby's diaper is dirty. That, that, it's just natural, and we grow up with that. We want our needs met, and we're talking about what's important to us and where we're going. And the shift that God has for this whole marriage thing is so radical that I'm going to suggest to you, you can't pull it off. That is, it is literally impossible for a human being to live this way. There's a word that gets introduced for this. And you're going to know the word probably even if you haven't been in church. But the church, this, this word is such an alternative to the one where everybody's looking to see how I get what I want, I get what I need. One, one writer said it this way, it, most marriage is like two ticks and no dog. Pardon think about it. Enter this word. The word is agape. You've probably heard that word before, right? Translated love. It's where we get all syrupy. We go, that's right. It's all about love. All you need is love. If we just love one another, yes, let's just, let's just love. This is where we need to get retrained according to God. If you've heard this before, I don't care. You're going to hear it again right now. This is such a significant thing. When God uses the word agape, the biblical meaning of that word is fundamentally different than most of the times we use the word love. Because I use the word love for that which usually has to do with what ignites passion within me, something that's emotional. One, One definition I saw is love, even romantic love, love is a feeling that you feel when you feel like you feel that you never felt it before. 
It's this feeling. It's this ethereal thing that you don't, you don't, you weren't looking for it. And you, we fell into it. I fell in love. I was just walking along, didn't want to, and I just fell in it. Wow. I just fell in love. And we fell in love. And I'm in love with you. You fell in too. Oh, isn't this great? And then we fall out of it. Because the, whatever that mist we were walking in, it lifted all of a sudden or over time. And I'm sorry. And then we say things like, I don't know if I ever loved you. We use that word love for that which we just feel like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm just motivated about it. But generally, it makes me feel things. And, and that word, that Greek word agape, is one of three Greek words that get used to translated love. Probably heard agape, eros, philos, right? This is what's unique. This is what's so unique when you read the New Testament and when you hear the words of Jesus. Until the time of Jesus, the Jewish community that was Greek-speaking at the time, when they used the word love, they understood that word to mean something that no human being was capable of having. Agape was exclusively the domain of the Most High God. God has a certain kind of love, and this is what they meant by it. That, that, that God initiated a covenant. It was a covenantal decision. It was a commitment. It was more than a contract. It was a covenant binding for life. It was a statement of the will that somebody said, uh, people, made, people made covenants with, with other nations. They made, they made, and then they would make covenants, and God says he would make a covenant with his people. It is a binding commitment that says there is no there is nothing that, I can, that can happen in my life that will change the decision that I'm committing myself to you. It's legal and decisive, binding and, non, and unconditional. It was something that was made to God, and it came from God, and that was it. It was sacrificial. It was a covenant that said, I'm going to do something in your life that's going to cost me something. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm going to make sacrifices. I'm going to sacrifice myself to give to you. It's a pretty good deal to be on the receiving end of a covenant. It's not such a good deal to be on the giving end of a covenant because you don't have any return promised. You don't have any teeth to make it happen. You just give it. So in that regard, it's completely irrational and unnatural. Everybody knows that you don't just keep investing in a company when you don't get returns from that company, right? Eventually you stop. You don't just keep giving. You don't you don't throw bad money after, good money after bad, we say. You don't just keep investing. So why would anybody make any kind of a decision like that toward anybody else? We said, well, we're not. We, we, we want return our, on our investment. And so human beings don't make those. We, we're not capable of making it because we're selfish. And therefore, agape was something that was understood. Agape is given from God to man. God gives his covenant to his people. God chose the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, it says, I did not choose you because of you did this or this, your size or your expertise. I just chose you because I chose you, Deuteronomy says. That's it. I, I set my affections on you, and I said, you're going to be mine forever. And they go, well, that's a good deal. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus dares to take the word agape and use it in ways that no one had ever used it before. And he said, to, from one person to another, you, agape them. Not only agape God, you, you, I'm calling on you to make a covenant, unconditional covenant that you sacrifice for your brothers. People don't even know what to do with that. 
It was a revolutionary thought. It gets lost in our translation sometimes when God, when the New Testament says, uh, love, love one another. We go, yeah, yeah, love one another. Let's put our arms around each other. Let's sing Kumbaya by the fire. Aren't we, don't we feel good? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying make a covenant of sacrifice, demanding nothing in return. And then God uses that term and introduces it to marriage. And he says, Ephesians 5, husbands, agape your wives. Want an example of what that means? Just as Christ loved, agape the church, and gave himself up for her. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came to agape you. He came to sacrifice himself to give something you didn't earn that he doesn't ask anything in return for. He just comes to give you the gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. And now God uses that word and says, now, husbands, you do that. You do that with your, with your wives. Here's the thing about agape. This is the unique property of agape. Agape cannot be generated from inside your soul. A human being is incapable of generating agape. Agape is only found in the universe in one place. It is found in the one who the Bible says is agape. Now, you were in 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't mind, just turn over toward the end of the New Testament to 1 John chapter 4. And this, when you understand that principle, it makes some of this stuff just jump out at me. I don't know if it will you. Because there's just a whole lot of love words in 1 John about, you know, if you look at 1 John 3, how, it's, verse 1 says, how great is the agape the Father has lavished on us. We should be called the children of God. That's who we are. And then it says, because we've received agape from him, we can give it. Now look at chapter 4, verse 7, 1 John 4. Dear friends, let's agape one another because, look, look at what it says, agape comes from God. And that, that, now this is going to make more sense. That everyone who loves, everyone who agapes, this has to be true of them. They've been born of God and know God. Whoever does not have agape does not know God because God is agape. He's the only source of it. This is, how we, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. In other words, there's sacrifice involved. This is agape, verse 10 says. Not that we agape God, he agape us. Sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then it's at verse 11, it says, Dear friends, since God so agape us, we also ought to love agape one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we agape him, we know God lives in us. Verse uh, 16, there's more here to see, but it says, and so we know and we rely on the agape that God has for us. I'm lingering here for a minute because this is really, really key to marriage. Agape is, you cannot just say, I feel affectionate toward you, that's philos. You can't say, I'm turned on by you, that's eros, and therefore I love you. And a human being, outside of having agape channeled into their soul, is incapable of producing it. You only get agape from one place. You get it from being rightly connected with God through His Son, Jesus. And then, you can't hoard it. You can't contain it. You you can't build reserves of it. All you can do is channel it. You can conduit. And so you receive it. This is why your relationship with God is absolutely the first thing, most important thing, in your marriage. You have to have the agape coming from him in order to turn and give it to anybody else. And God calls on us, say, you want a healthy marriage? That's got to happen. So, 
because it's found exclusively in him, it can't be sustained otherwise. You have to be reconnected with God to channel agape. I'll say it this way. It's going to sound a little funny. If that's the definition of love, if a person is not personally restored with God through Jesus Christ, they cannot love their spouse. They can have a lot. Of, doesn't mean they can't have a long marriage. Doesn't mean they can't smile about it. Doesn't mean they can't have harmony. But they can't have this instrument because this only comes when it's received directly from God. And so that's going to lead to this third statement, which is going to summarize that. That we saw a person ready to be married is someone who doesn't have to be married in order to be whole. A person ready to be married is already living out a self-denial lifestyle, which includes this. And therefore, it leads to this. That the person who's ready to be married, I'm going to put it this way, they have their spiritual battery turned on and fully charged. Now, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 7, did you lose it? I did. Hang on a second. You will see a statement in verse 39. It says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, is in the context of whether she's free to remarry and that kind of thing. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. And then it has this little phrase at the end that's repeated in other themes through that scripture. But he must belong to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6 is going to say, Don't be unequally yoked is the old phrase that gets used. Don't be, don't be put together. Don't, don't bind yourself together who doesn't have the same source of spiritual aliveness as you. There's a reason God calls on us to do that. And I believe that this means that followers of Jesus need to date people who are followers of Jesus. They need to marry followers of Jesus. Not just because the direction and trajectory of their life is going to go different places, but because the central core element that is required for a marriage to be whole, is related to that. He, if a person is in the Lord, they're connected with him, they're forgiven by him, and his agape is gonna, it has the potential to flow through them. It, that, that's not there to be restrictive. It's there because it's essential to oneness. I saw a, a report that people who are in, uh, do computer technical, uh, if you call the technical department, all, probably all of us have done that, right? I can't, and they say, and people joke about the fact that if you call the computer technical service area, they'll always ask you the first, th- the first thing when you say, I can't get it to work, they'll ask you, the first qu- thing they'll ask you is what? Is it plugged in? And the second question that they will ask is, is it turned on? And a lot of us go, oh, that is so insulting. Yes, of course it's plugged in. And then I heard stories about this. And one of the stories was, a man calls, and he says, okay, is your computer plugged in? And he goes, I am a college-educated man. I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. Of course it's plugged in. Okay, okay. Is it, all right, is it turned on? Why, why, let's get to this, the important stuff. Come on, help me out. He says, I don't understand why you sent me this stuff, because I, I got it out of the box, and there's stuff. it looks like there might be stuff missing, and then you send me an extra power cord when I don't need an extra power cord. And he goes, an extra power cord? Wait a minute, what, what's the model number? He goes, he gives him the model number. He says, Says so there was a a, a mod, like a modem kind of plug for high speed internet. He said, "Okay, that is that plugged in." He goes, "Would you quit?" He says, "Do me a favor, if you would, please." He says, "Would you just go under the table, look and see this one port, and see if the, a, a thicker cord is plugged in that, and it's fits plugged into the, a, an outlet in the wall." The guy's gone. He's rustling. Gets right. Click, hangs up. Ten percent 
of calls that go to the computer technical, 10% of the calls when they say they can't get their computer on are solved if, because, they don't ha- because they haven't plugged it in or turned it on. For a marriage to have love in it, for it to have health and for it to thrive, it is essential that the first thing it has to do is that it's the battery, I'm going to call it the battery, the soul of a per- person in it has to be plugged in. The only way it's plugged in is being restored in a personal relationship with God through the forgiveness that comes at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it gets plugged in. That's the only way the, the opening even happens for the love, the agape, to flow through. That's what 1 John says. If a person doesn't agape, it's because they don't know God. But beyond that, it needs to be charged. It has to be replenished. You don't just create a reservoir of love and then dispense it. It can only flow through you to somebody else so that your ongoing connectivity with God, which he welcomes and invites, is going to be central to whether love is flowing through you to the other person, which just raises a very, very simple question. Is that happening in our lives? Has it happened in your life? If you're not sure that you have ever had your battery plugged in by, you've ever had your soul brought to life, it's what Jesus talked about when he said being born again. It needs to be rebirthed. Your soul, your battery is dead. It needs to be brought back to life. If that has never happened, that's where your marriage starts. And where it continues is the power being turned on. That the love that God gives when we are connecting personally with Him, when we are leaning on Him, we're in prayer with Him, when we're aware of His presence, when we're walking with Him, when we're obeying Him and and living in relationship with Him, then His love comes in us. And it's amazing how His love just starts spilling out when we don't even know what's happened. It starts changing the way we interact. There was another survey done about traits of a good marriage. Here's the list. People were asked, what are the traits of a good marriage? And these were the top ones that were given love care harmony patience kindness support fidelity friendship communication and respect you know what's really interesting about that list that reminds you of any other list there's another list it's in galatians chapter 5 and that list is called the fruits of the holy spirit's presence in somebody's life so if the holy spirit who comes in when we receive christ as our savior and is amplified his power is amplified in our lives as we walk with him it says, as a result of having that connection open and flowing, some stuff comes out of us. There's fruit that grows. And that fruit is listed like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would you just compare those two lists for a minute and just see what you see? So many of the things that are listed is like, that's a good marriage. Are the things that come primarily as a fruit of our connectivity with God's Spirit. You, over the next three weeks, we could give you, we're going to give you some tips. We're going to give you some practical stuff to, that we can do for communication, for conflict resolution, for understanding what our roles are in our marriage, for making it better. We can do all that all day. But none of that, none of that is going to solve the, the foundational problem that God will solve when it comes to being love having, coming into us and through us. It starts with God. It starts with our relationship with God. 
So the question I leave you with today is, are you ready for your marriage? Whether it's a marriage in the future, a marriage that's present. Are you ready for it? If that's what it means to be ready. And will you look for people who are? And next week we'll jump in to what we do about it as men and women. Let's pray.